The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. Yeah, I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. The following is a presentation of the Speed Sport Podcast Network. Mike Wallace doesn't have all that much driving experience. For the last three or four years, he's put in his views in this business. Mike Wallace comes down to the line. He'll pick up the win. It's fast car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. The battle's for the lead. Mike Wallace gets by Jason Leffler. Mike Wallace comes off turn number four. A great move in that corner. He comes to the line and will win. From grassroots to the top of the racing world. Hear the stories of NASCAR's biggest names and how they made it all the way. Who was Tony Stewart before he was Tony Stewart? I could barely make enough money to pay attention, let alone to try to survive. From the Speed Sport Podcast Studios, powered by My Race Pass, here are your hosts, Mike Wallace and Jeff Kent. Welcome to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace, part of the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass. My name is Jeff Kent. Strap yourselves in, pull those belts tight. We'll take you on a journey from short tracks across America to super speedways and everything in between. Today's guest, Mike, busy guy, president of Penske Racing. He has overall management responsibility for Team Penske's racing operation, which in 2023 includes teams competing in the NASCAR Cup Series, the NTT IndyCar Series, the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship, and the World Endurance Championship. Additionally, he oversees Penske Technology Group, Penske Restoration, the Penske Heritage Center, and the Penske Racing Museum. Busy guy, see what I mean? His 24-year career with Team Penske includes more than 400 victories and 27 championships, nine Indy 500 wins, three Daytona 500 victories, and an overall win at the 12 Hours of Sebring. Team Penske had a pretty good weekend just a week or so ago with the Indy 500 and the Coca-Cola 600. Welcome to the podcast, Tim Sindrick. Tim, say hi to Mike Wallace. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Tim, I don't know what to say, man. It's incredible. You got you guys had such a great Memorial Day weekend. Yeah, no, without a doubt. Uh, I think we exceeded our expectations for sure. But, um, yeah, that never gets old. Um, yeah, I can't say enough about this group and, and really all the work they put in to making it all happen. Yeah, so this show is all about you, Tim, and it's uh, we're going to go back in time, but I have to, I'd be remiss if I don't cover some of the current news because I think it's so important, uh, especially my family's had a tie with Penske Racing for many years, of course, with my brother Rusty driving for Roger for many, many years. I had a short little few race stint that saved my career in racing, <laughs> and, uh, sure. and then I, uh, I had an incredible experience. Two weeks ago, I went to my very first Indy 500. I ran into you and your wife, said a nice, quick, simple little hello to each other. And then here you turn around as a race race strategist and president of Penske Racing with Joseph Newgarden and win the Indy 500 in probably one of the most epic duels at the end of a race you could ask for. Uh, Number one, congratulations on that. And then number two, 
the next day, due to a rain delay, your your team comes back and wins the Coca-Cola 600 in Charlotte. I mean, what was that weekend like for you and, and the organization? Yeah, thanks, Mike. First of all, I can't I can't imagine being at my first Indy 500. I don't remember my first Indy 500, so I, I'm interested to kind of know what your reaction to all that was. But, um, yeah, I, the, the whole weekend was pretty surreal, to be honest. Um, you know, we've been working here for a few years to – to try and get Roger to where he was, you know, starting the race with the, the command to start engines. And then, uh, you know, wanting him back on that same stage at the end of the race, you know, now that he's the, you know, the, the steward of the place and, and, uh, to be able to finally accomplish that, that, that was goal. Number one, um, number two, you know, I've been working with new garden now, Joseph for I think 12 years as, his, as a strategist, it's, it's gone. Well, I, I shouldn't say I've been working with him for 12 years, but he's tried to win that race for 12 years. I, I think we're going on year seven, if I remember correctly, but, um, yeah, to, to see him finally check that box with all the success he's had on the ovals. And, you know, I, I know how much pressure he's put on himself to win at that place. And, and, uh, really, you know, I don't know if an Indy car driver's career is really complete until you do experience you know, winning the Indy 500. So awesome day there. And then, yeah, as you said, to, to turn around and then, you know, watch Ryan Blaney, you know, break his losing streak there and, and put him back in victory lane at the Coke 600 with, with our group and, you know, being the first group to ever do that. And it's, it's hard to give Roger something he, he doesn't have. So, um, yeah, just big weekend for us, for sure. So on Tuesday mornings at the shop, after a weekend like that, which mm-hmm. no, you never experienced before because you're the first team that's ever experienced it. What, what's, what's the mojo around the shop on Tuesday morning? I mean, was it like back to business as normal or was there a little pep in everybody's step till about 10 or 11? Then they realized you got to get to work. No, it's good stuff. You know, we, we have a happy hour here whenever we, we try and celebrate our victories. And, um, yeah, Tuesday was, was a double happy hour. Um, <laughs> anyway, we, we typically do it at lunch and yeah, we had a band here. We had you know, shrimp and steak and, and fed the group. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was really cool because, you know, Ryan was com- able to come in and, and the, the team usually watches the test last 10, 15 laps of each race. And, they were able to do that. And then obviously Joseph was on his media tour in New York and so forth. And he called in and, and did some live video um, and just, yeah, great celebration. But as you say, we're, we're off to the Detroit Grand Prix the next day and, and off the gateway. So yeah, busy week for sure. Uh, well, beautiful. Let me ask you, or let me say something and you clarified if I'm saying it wrong. I just want all the fans. Jeff, how many people are listening around the world? The whole world is listening, Mike and Tim. <laughs> the whole world. The whole world. So yeah. just to, to the people that are listening, again, we're going we're gonna to cover Tim Sendrick in detail here in a few moments. But one of their very, very few are the only organization that I know of. Penske Racing houses most all of their racing, their IndyCar program, their stock NASCAR stock car program basically under the same roof here in Mooresville, North Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you guys used to not do that. Is that correct, Tim? I mean, it's, it has always <laughs> yeah, been so, that way. Yeah. So we, we had our IndyCar team was based in, in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, it, it all started there as far as the racing program in 1966. And they, they worked out of the little building in Newtown Square, Pennsylvania. And then that, that evolved into, a Penske truck leasing facility in, in Reading in 1973. And, and the IndyCar team actually operated from 73 through 2006 um, in that facility in Reading, Pennsylvania. Um, we also ran um, at least the initial part of, of the RS Spider Porsche program there, 2005 and the beginning of 2006, which was really the catalyst for, for moving everything into North Carolina. I mean, as you know, Mike, the, the NASCAR team, you know, had, had really from a full-time perspective, you know, started with, with Rusty uh, back in 1991 and, you know, had, had the building there in, in Mooresville. And then that evolved into a, another building when they expanded the, to the, the 12 car with, with Pranifus. And they were, they were operating out of really three different buildings when, they, when you threw the 77 car in there as well. And, and uh, so basically there were those three facilities and then there was the one, in Reading, Pennsylvania, and, and I'd gone to work for Roger in 1999 to run his IndyCar program. And when the Porsche program got to where it was going to be a full-time effort, factory effort, we, we only had 39,000 square feet in, in Reading. 
Um, and he, he ran IROC out of there. He, he ran the IndyCar program out of there. It was definitely one of those if walls could talk type places because it was so small and did so much. There was a, an engine dyno in there, uh, did all the engines for the Indy cars in there as well. So small place, uh, but, you know, had a lot of history. Um, but anyway, when, when uh, I needed to go look for a, a full-time facility for the, uh, the Porsche program, you know, I, I kind of thought it was a, a test because Roger had just purchased in 2004, he had purchased the, our current facility, which is, you know, 400 and some thousand square feet on a hundred acres, a, uh, a Panasonic building that had been, you know, basically abandoned, um, you know, after a 10 year plan there. And, and uh, the stock car team was, was going to consolidate all, all three of their buildings into this building, but still had a couple hundred thousand square feet left over. And, you know, I said to Roger, why, why wouldn't we just put the Porsche program in, in that facility? And, you know, I, I could, I can commute back and forth or we can find somebody else to run the Porsche program. And, uh, you know, he said, you know, what we ought to do is we ought to move everybody into that building and the Indy car and the NASCAR and everything else. And, and you should just run the whole place. And that really wasn't what I had in mind. <laughs> to be honest, I, I was in a pretty good place moving to Charlotte was great. Yeah. I was all for that. Um, but taking over the, the NASCAR responsibility in addition to, um, to everything else I had going on really wasn't, uh, it wasn't my top choice, but, um, uh, you know, I, I, I saw, I saw the need to have a common approach. I knew it was going to take a while. Um, I knew the cultures were quite different. Um, but I, I was always, I was always curious, you know, why obviously Rusty had all of his successes. Um, but I, from afar, it didn't seem consistent and, you know, there wasn't a Daytona 500 to talk about. There wasn't a championship to talk about. Obviously, Rusty was already a champion before he came here, but the team couldn't give that to him while he was here. And I just, with all the resources that were there, I just didn't understand why. And, um, and Roger said, well, that's your job to go figure it out. And uh, anyway, yeah, I immersed myself into to the NASCAR program in 2005, 2006, really focused on trying to understand it. Um, not be the expert, but at least understand it. And, and yeah, we've, we've been operating everything. In fact, we actually, we started a, a global Porsche program again. Um, I actually take off for Le Mans on Tuesday. So tomorrow I leave for Le Mans to try and uh, check a big box for, for Roger and the Penske organization as, as we've never won at Le Mans. And, and that's one of Roger's huge aspirations. Um, so we're, we're running the top class at Le Mans. We have three cars, nine, six threes. Um, we, we house two of those, the IMSA program also here in, in Mooresville. And then we, we actually have the WEC Porsche program in Mannheim, Germany. Um, so we, we have two cars and a team over there full time. So a lot going on. You guys are just a global race team, aren't you? I mean, they got a lot of stuff going on, a lot of irons in the fire. Yeah, yeah. I, I listen to that and it just, it just awes me that, um, I guess because Rusty uh, had drove for Roger Penske for so many years, and I believe it or not, Tim, I was the right rear tire changer at Atlanta for the very first race in the number two Chevy Caprice that Rusty drove for Roger Penske. <laughs> no That's awesome! I didn't know that. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> That's I, uh, awesome. I flew from St. Louis down, and I was big man. I was big time. I yeah. I was pitting on an Indy car or on a cup team and never pitted in my life, you know, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. he, he ran second to Dale Earnhardt that day. And, uh, what, what an amazing deal. So let me just skip over all the current things because hopefully we got enough time to get back to it. But what are the purpose of our show is to go back in time with you, uh, the race world, everybody immediately associated in it knows Tim Sindry knows that they don't know you and don't know everything about you, but they know your name because you're famous. So I was wondering if you can help take our fans that are listening around the world back as far as you want to take us. And what was your first interest in motorsports? Where did that even come from? And was it a little kid? Was it a young adult? How about you take it and tell a little bit of the story? Sure. I mean, it's a bit of a script. If, if, if you wrote it, wow. you wouldn't believe that it actually happened. Um, my, my father was, he was a, I guess a, a frustrated, um, uh, late model driver slash, uh, engine builder, hot rodder from California. So he grew up in the San Fernando Valley. Um, 
you know, raced around there in the 50s and 60s. In fact, after he passed away, I found this 1966 NASCAR driver's license, which was, um, hmm. yeah, pretty ironic in a lot of ways. Um, but anyway, he he moved to um, to Indianapolis. He he moved to Indianapolis and and actually was a pit crew member of Mike Mosley's car in 1969. And my my mother actually had me in a stroller in the snake pit during that race because she had no idea where to go. And well, she brought she you up me, right at Indy, didn't she? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I, right from right from age one. I think it was a year and a month. And she said I was sitting there in diapers, and somebody grabbed her and said, you really shouldn't be here um, with that baby in this part of the racetrack. But you can watch the race in the back of my pickup truck. So she threw me in my stroller there, and, and that was my first race. Um, my father then went on to work for, uh, for Grant King for a couple years after that until he until he served his apprenticeship with a, a man by the name of herb porter and herb porter was an engine builder um he was he was credited with bringing the bringing the first turbocharged um car to indianapolis a turbocharged offy uh he brought to indianapolis and um anyway he worked out of those old wooden garages year round my father did and and if you fast forward to 1985, 1986, uh, is when the Speedway actually tore down the old wooden garages and built the existing garages there. And, and when they did that, uh, my father and, and that business no longer had a place to be. Uh, I was actually in high school at the time. And they, they moved uh, on the other side of, of Detroit Diesel Allison, which is about a couple miles from the Speedway. They, they built a little dynamometer and, and IndyCar race engine rebuild shop. And the primary source of income from the 70s, 80s, 90s was when you used to test tires for, for Goodyear in the IndyCars, um, Goodyear actually had a fleet of Cosworth or Offenhauser engines that uh, they found that the engines and cars were so different back in the day in the 70s that they couldn't really test the tires very well because each car they used had different specifications of engines. So they decided to buy a fleet of Offenhausers, and then they had my father's company or Herb's company actually maintain those and keep those to where they were they were all the same. So they could put those engines in, in their tire testing cars for the teams and then the teams wouldn't have an engine build, but they would be able to, to predict, you know, how, how the power was going to be for those tests. Um, and on the side, they would actually do some R and D and build some R and D engines and, and try and sell pieces, parts, and things to other competitors, which is where Roger Penske, when he qualified in 1972, 73, he actually used engines that, uh, that my father's group built. Uh, to sit on the pole or to sit in the front row at Indianapolis, I should say. Um, and at the time, my father, I remember he was we were building a house there in Indianapolis, just a little little house. But um, Roger evidently had given him a bonus um, or paid him something for doing an engine for him. And my father took that money and actually carpeted our house with this, this old orange shag carpeting, you know, back from the seventies, which I hated as a kid. That's the only reason I remember is because I couldn't play with my hot wheels on the, yeah, on the floor right. of this without Tim on, messed up. Tim on that note of the carpet, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. We're talking yeah. to the president of Penske Racing, Tim Sindrick on the line. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass and NASCAR Digital Media. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to the Speed Sport Podcast Studios. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. Tim Sindrick on the line. He's the president of Penske Racing. At age one, 
He was at the Indy 500. Once again, here's Mike Wallace. Well, Tim, I'm excited to hear that Roger Penske gave your dad a little little perk or a little bonus, but your house got carpeted with orange shag carpeting? Yeah, it's the 70s style deep pile uh, shag carpet is what they called it. His favorite color was brown. So the, <laughs> the kind of burnt orange match with the brown is horrible. Anyway, <laughs> so I, I always remember that. And he wouldn't replace it because Roger Penske put that carpet in his house, you know, as, as a kid. And, and I sat there, you know, I would go to the racetrack all the time. You know, I, I didn't miss a day of practice or qualifying or whatever else. And, and uh, yeah, I would just sit behind Roger's pit and just watch those guys work. That's what I did as, as a kid. And, uh, Anyway, if, if you fast forward to the time I was in high school and, and my father had, had this little engine shop, and there were only three or four people that worked there. And uh, when he was building it, I, I started sweeping the floors for a job. Um, then that, that turned into taking engines apart and, and disassembling them and, and washing them, you know, the parts cleaner. And then that evolved into working in the dynamometer room and, you know, putting engines on and off the dyno. Um, so that's, that's really what I did throughout high school and throughout college. Um, my father, when I graduated from high school, you know, I played Indiana basketball, which at the time was just like the movie Hoosiers. You know, you were bigger than life in Indiana if you played high school basketball. And I did that pretty well. Um, I didn't do it well enough um, <laughs> to where I, I could probably play low division one um, or I could go anywhere else I wanted to, kind of division two, division three. And, you know, I, I decided that I should probably go somewhere where I couldn't otherwise get in. Um, I didn't really want to go to school in the first place. You know, I just wanted to go be a mechanic. I didn't grow up with much, didn't have much money. I told my father, look, I just want to go be an IndyCar mechanic and I'll be good. And he said, look, I didn't have a chance to get an education. Um, you know, it's, it's kept me where I am and I'll make sure you don't get a job in racing. If you don't go to school, I don't <laughs> care where you go. I don't care what you study, but I will make sure you don't get a job in racing. And I, I believed him. So, I um, started thinking about where to go, and there was a, an engineering school in, in Terre Haute, Indiana called Rose Holman Institute of Technology. At the time, it was all male. It was like Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> I mean, it was – I went there, and I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I do not fit in here at all. Um, but they told me I could play basketball there, and uh, if I passed summer school, I, I could actually go to school there. And um, – Man, I decided there's a chance of a lifetime to get a great education, one that I couldn't get otherwise. I mean, my grades were okay, but they weren't that level. And uh, probably the best decision I ever made was to go to school there. And I got a mechanical engineering degree there. Um, and I think that's really what differentiated me, um, you know, when Roger came calling. Um, that education, he was well aware of that. And I say Rose Holman, you know, the Holman family, um, you know, the Holman family that owned the Speedway at the time, you know, they were the biggest benefactors and they, they were from Terre Haute. Um, so that was really where my education really came into play. Um, while I was in college, um, the Budweiser IndyCar team, which was called True Sports at the time, they purchased my dad's small engine business and moved it to Columbus, Ohio or Hilliard, Ohio. True Sports, and, wasn't that Bobby yeah. Ray Hall's deal? Ray Hall was yeah, driving for yeah, them back in the day? Ex exactly, exactly. Okay. So Bobby was... Bobby drove for Jim Truman and, and True Sports, okay. and this is 1989. So Bobby had already won the Indy 586. Um, Jim Truman had already passed away of cancer um, a couple weeks after that race, and then uh, Steve Horn and then uh, Jim's Jim's widow Barbara Truman. Uh, and Jim Jim founded Red Roof Inns, is what he was famous for. I remember that. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he founded Red Roof Inns, and and that was the Budweiser IndyCar team at the time. So. Anyway, that, that group purchased my dad's little engine business and moved it to Columbus, Ohio, while I was in college. Um, when I was in school, I decided to interview with the big three and all these different places to see what that was all about. Um, but in the end, I decided that I, they offered me a job to go work there as an engineer. And I decided to take that job because I felt like, I guess my experience in racing was that it's, it's hard to get into it after your family kind of, uh, I saw so many, so many people that had what I call real jobs. And they would come to go racing and their family wouldn't understand it. They'd think it was cool for a year or two, but when dad wasn't home, um, you know, it didn't usually end well. So I kind of, <laughs> including my own family, um, my parents were divorced by that point in time. And like, you know, if I'm going to do this, I don't have any commitments right now. 
I don't really have anything I, that's keeping me back from trying this. And if, if something comes along the way, that's, that's the way they'll know me. That's the way they'll accept me in the beginning. And so I, I took a job there, uh, that lasted for about a year or two, um, into 1992, uh, the team went out of business and Bobby Rahal bought the assets of that team and hired me first as a production manager, uh, to help build this made in America IndyCar that only lasted for about a year. And then, um, and my goal was to be either a race engineer or a team manager by the time I was in my thirties. And I was 25 or 26 years old. And, and, uh, he and Carl Hogan, who was a, a trucking guy there in St. Louis. In St. Louis Hogan. Hogan. No, I yeah. know exactly yeah. who he is. Hogan trucking it, used to be out in Earth yep. city, Missouri. Yeah. So it was Ray Hall Hogan. It was the team. Okay. And, um, yeah, Carl, Carl Hogan brought me in the, in the truck in 1994, uh, Michigan actually. And he brought me in the bus and said, Hey, we need you to manage the team. And I'm like, Carl, I, I'm too young to do this. I, I, I'm not your guy. Um, and what I'm age were you rather, there, Tim? What, what age were you at when he offered that opportunity? I would have been 20, 25 or 26. Wow. Okay. That's, um, and I tried to tell him, look, I, I wasn't ready for that. And then Bobby came in and said, you know, that's the only job we have here for you. So you make up your mind what you're going to do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Bobby was still driving at the time. And so anyway, I, I kind of took that and ran with it. And then that was the middle of the 1994 and then 95 started. And Bobby said, Hey, I want you to be my, my race strategist, crew chief type on the radio during the races as well. And I'm like, Bobby, <laughs> I, I've never done that before. He goes, no, that's what you're doing. Yeah. So anyway, I spent the next couple of years making a lot of mistakes on his time. Um, and yeah, David Letterman bought into the team then in 1996, um, and Carl and Bobby split ways. So I, I went to work for them and I got to know Roger along the way. Um, my wife actually knew him better than I did, um, you know, through her family connection. Um, and <laughs> the irony of it all was my, my wife is actually Jim Truman's daughter. Oh, um, so I met, yeah, I met you, Megan. You met her working, was, working for the race team probably then. Yeah. Working for the race team. Oh, yep. great. You know, I just, I just knew her as the boss's daughter and uh, <laughs> way out of my league. <laughs> Apparently and, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. You and, done something right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it was, it was, it was pretty odd. Actually, it was back in 1991. I was, it was still true sports at the time. And my father had somebody, Ironically, his name was Jeff Gordon, but he was a different Jeff Gordon, and, and he was he was leaving. He was one of my father's first employees, and they were having a going away party for him at some pub in in Hilliard and uh, in Ohio. And Megan, my wife, and and her mother and my father, they were all sitting at a table, kind of a big wig table, you know, where all the bosses were. And I was over with the other guys, and and we were leaving this dinner to go out to you know some club afterwards. And, uh, you know, I went to say goodbye to my father and, you know, her mother and whatever. And I just, I thought I'd be a nice guy and just say, Hey, we're, we're going over to club, you know, down the street. If, if you're interested in going, that's where we're going. And, uh, I'd never really talked to her ever. Um, and ironically she showed up and, uh, you know, we, we talked, I'm not much of a dancer, so <laughs> stood in the corner and had a few drinks and talked to her. And, uh, she, um, she was working for mid Ohio at the time because their, their family owned mid Ohio, the racetrack and she was doing PR for them. And she went to Daytona 500. And, and uh, after she came back, she, she asked me for a ride home from the airport because she needed a ride. And I, I didn't think about it too. I didn't think too much of it. Cause I, I thought she was just the boss's daughter looking for me to be the chauffeur. Um, so I, I did pick her up begrudgingly and, and took her to her mom's house where she was living. And at that point, um, we got there and she said, okay, tomorrow night I cook you dinner. <laughs> like, okay. This is a little bigger deal. Um, so we, we were married a year later and, and that's, that's kind of how that all started. So, um, well, Tim, you know, there's anyway. a, Jeff would know this because he's the music guy. There's a famous country song about something about the farmer's daughter. Yeah, that's right. right? Yeah. <laughs> so you just, <laughs> yeah. the it's, it's a really good yeah. song too. It's just like the guy's got this passion for the farmer's daughter. You yeah. Know? So, yeah. Well, cool. Congratulations on that. You didn't waste any time. That education kicked in really well quick. <laughs> no, that's called, that's called street smart. Yeah. That, <laughs> gotta have that. That cred, as they call her, street cred. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So a year later, yep. you, after you met, you took her. You were nice enough to invite her out. 
she probably thought that was cool because everybody was thinking she's the boss's daughter. They're not going to mess with her. <laughs> and uh, yep. in, a, in a nice way, being respectful, you know, you t- and yep. you were normal and it all turned out good. So, yeah, uh, no, we got married later and a year later. And then, uh, you know, I worked for Bobby and, and then David uh, Letterman. Um, and then if you fast forward to 1999, I was working for Bobby. Um, at that time, Max Pappas and Brian Herter were our drivers. And I got this call on a Wednesday night at my house. I was watching television at probably 10 o'clock at night, just in my bedroom watching television. And uh, my wife, Megan, answered the phone. It was an unlisted number. And, and uh, <laughs> she answered the phone. She answered the phone. She says, Ray is on the phone. Well, Ray was one of our race engineers, which I thought was odd. It was going to call at 10 o'clock at night at that point. And that was before cell phones and all that really mattered. Mm-hmm. And um, she answered me the phone and, I just said, hello. And he said, this is Roger Penske. (laughs) Sat up in my bed, you know, you got that call. It's like, I'm like, yes, sir. What can I help you with? And he just starts going on about um, how his IndyCar team hasn't won a race in two and a half years. Um, His choice is to either shut it down or figure out how to change everything. And he had just hired Greg Moore and and, uh, Gilles DeFerrin to drive. He was switching to Goodyear tire or to Firestone tires from Goodyear. He was buying Raynards instead of building his own cars. He was going to Hondas instead of running his own engines. You know, I'd seen and followed all the changes he was making. And he said, now I need a partner. I need somebody that can run this place. I don't need a team manager. I need a partner. And Mike, honestly, I thought he was asking me for a reference. I mean, I'm 30 or 31 years old. And I said, Mr. Penske, who can I tell you about? And he said, can you meet me in New York City this week? <laughs> I'm like, you know, I'm just like, I, I never missed a day of work in my life. And I'm, I, I said, sure. And he's like, hey, here's my assistant's name. Um, she's going to reach out to you. Um, I've got an office on Park Avenue. I'll meet you there. Thanks. Unreal. <laughs> and my, and my wife is like, are we moving to Pennsylvania? I was like, Megan. <laughs> I don't know. I just I'm going to go talk to the guy. Uh, that, I'm so. I, I ha, I'm kind of speechless, Tim. To be honest with you, because I will tell you, back six months ago, we had Paul Tracy on the show, and yeah. Paul gave us a little Penske story, and it was wasn't it, Jeff? They met him. Paul met Roger at Detroit Diesel like at midnight or something on a. I know that office. Okay. I know the office he's referring to. Yeah. Okay. So I, just the way you said, I'll meet you in New York. So, okay. I don't want to slow this down. Your, your, your wife goes, are we moving to Pennsylvania? And your response yeah. was. <laughs> yeah. I, I said, look, I'm going to go, I'm going to go meet the guy. I'm going to go listen to him. And uh, you know, our, our kids were Austin had just been born. Um, Austin wasn't even a year old yet. And uh, his brother Tanner was, I think, two or three. Can I can and... I interrupt you just for a second there? Sure. And I I did not realize you had a son by the name of Tanner. I've only heard of Austin. So I was um, when I was at the Indy 500. I fi- actually read it somewhere or something. What do, is Tanner involved in motorsports? Uh, no, he he, uh, he he's Tanner or Austin's older brother. Um, he went to school and got his business degree in, at Denver University. Um, he always followed motorsports, loves motorsports. Um, but you know, didn't have any interest in being in the business. Uh, when he was, when he was in high school, he had his own little clothing line called night train. And if you look at any of Austin's old pictures of when he was running open wheel or legends or whatever else, you'd see the, the name night train on there. Well, that was his brother's little clothing company that he would sell out of the trunk of his car with one of those squares. Oh, wow. And yeah, he, he had this entrepreneurial <laughs> you know, uh, mentality. And when he got out of school, he wanted to live abroad. Uh, so he figured out how to go live in London, uh, went to work for a marketing company in London. And then a couple of years later, he moved to Oslo, Norway. Um, and he works for a really cool hat company called varsity headwear. Um, you can look it up online, uh, but they're a real high line. Like it's a baseball cap type hat, but these things cost 300, $300, $300, and there's no stitching on them. Uh, there's exotic materials, stitching, whatever else. And uh, these two brothers formed this company, Norwegian Brothers. To They couldn't find hats to fit them. So they decided to build the nicest hat company in the world. So that's where he works. 
Incredible. That's an interesting story, isn't it? Yeah, interesting. Let's take a quick break and come back for the final segment. He's that. the president of Penske Racing, Tim Sendrick on the line. We'll be back in a second. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass and NASCAR Digital Media. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome back to the Speed Sport Podcast Studios. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. Our guest today, the president of Penske Racing, Tim Sendrick on the line. Once again, here's Mike Wallace. Well, Tim, we, we left that, and Tanner, your other son, our older son, is working for Varsity Headwear, uh, a cool hat. So d- how about Dad? Do you wear any Varsity stuff or Roger Penske? I know you guys always got a hat on, so uh, normally has a Team Penske logo on it, but... Uh, is that varsity underneath that by any chance? <laughs> well, the irony of it is, um, no, I, I, I wear a Puma hat because that, that's kind of a team's thing. But um, Roger saw these hats uh, the first time, and he said to Tanner, look, I need six white ones and six black ones. Th- those are what I want. And um, so, yeah, so Roger, he's worn a varsity headwear hat ever since. He sends them out, has them embroidered. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's what – it's what the captain sports these days. That's so really it's, cool. It's pretty cool to see it you know, full circle. You know, I seen the captain for the first time in a few years, <clears throat> of course, at Indy for my first Indy 500. And I was never so shocked on Sunday. I seen him in a suit and tie. I don't think I ever seen Roger in a suit and tie at the racetrack. It's normally a white, you know, dress down shirt right, and yeah. just all that prim mm-hmm. and proper like you guys all dress. And it's like, oh, my gosh. Right. When RP. you give the command to start engines, you know, <laughs> at, the, at the biggest sporting event in the world, he, he's going to be the best dressed for sure. Tim, I'm going to tell you, and I'm not going to get into it because this shows about you. That was the most amazing experience I ever had, to be honest with you. I've been to a lot of races, been to a lot of world events, been a lot of places. But that Indy 500, now I know what all the buzz is about. It, it was just yeah. it was incredible. But uh, yeah, it's a sporting event. The patriotism is second to none. You yeah. know, it's incredible when the weather's right. It's, it's you can't beat it. Yeah. So let's jump back to you're going to meet Roger in New York. Uh, you're not sure. You told your wife you're not sure. You're just going to go listen to him. So how would it go from there? Well, it took me it took me three months to really decide to go work for him. Um, as ironic as that is, I mean, he was. He was my hero. I could tell you more history about him than he remembers. Um, and the biggest question I had for him was he had so many people that had worked for him for so long that I respected. And I, I just couldn't understand how he was going to drop me in on top of all these people. You know, I, if he would have said, hey, I'm going to have you run this division or run do this or have this job or whatever, or work for this person, it would have made more sense. But to me, it didn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd been on an IndyCar team that had won two races ever. And it wasn't like I was, you know, Chad Knauss or somebody or Ray Evernham, um, you know, rel- relative to my track record. Um, so I really didn't understand why. And I would meet him in his hotel rooms at night, kind of like Tracy talked to you about mm-hmm. at, at these different races, you know, we'd have these secret meetings cause his busy, his schedule obviously is so busy and I would go meet with him in secret to try and understand even from the outside it's really hard to understand how it was all organized and who works for who and like who what's the corporate side what's the racing side it's it's a big place a big empire and i wanted to know my place you know i didn't want to fail um and all he could say to me was tim you'll understand why i need you after you're here Oh, wow. That's, that's kind of open-ended, isn't it, Jeff? Yeah, I'm like, all right, that really helps because <laughs> I don't have any idea what you're talking about. Um, but, yeah, it it was ironic. And, and, you know, he made all these changes within the team, and the only change that the team didn't welcome was me. <laughs> I mean, all this other stuff that they 
they were embraced completely. Um, but they, they didn't want somebody at the top running the show. Um, but what I came to find was that, you know, Roger had been so hands-on that he had never really truly given the keys to somebody. And, and what I, what I tried to respectfully tell him was, look, I don't want to be your yes, man. I don't want to be your puppet. I want to make a difference, but I'm going to disagree with you sometimes. And I'm not afraid to fail. I'm not afraid to, you know, move on because I, I feel like I can. I'm, I'm employable somewhere else, so I, I'm not going to run scared. I, I'm going to re- work with you in a respectful way, but I'm going to, I'm going to help you understand why your IndyCar team hasn't won in two and a half years. And uh, man, it was <laughs> the first race I ever worked for him was the 1999 Fontana, the last race of the '99 season. Uh, I tried to finish out my year with Ray Hall. Uh, Bobby asked me to stay home from Australia, which was the second to last race of the year, uh, to get organized and, and to leave it in the right way. Uh, but I couldn't tell him where I was going to work either. You know, Roger didn't want anybody to know where I was going. So it was really hard to leave Bobby um, in the way that I did because I couldn't tell him where. And, and he had made some assumptions that weren't correct as far as where I was going and what I was doing. And he was disappointed. Um but I, I explained to him it was a chance of a lifetime um, and I won't get this chance again. And, and after he found out what, where it was and what it was, he understood. But uh, anyway, my first race with the team was at the 1999 Fontana, California 500 or whatever. And that was a race where Greg Moore, who we had been to, I'd actually traveled to England to Rogers uh, IndyCar factory with, with Greg and, and Jill and those guys, even though Greg, they weren't driving for us yet. We, we'd gone to England to see Penske cars. And that, that race was his last race with, well, their last race with their existing team. And then they were going to come do a tire test with us at, at Portland after the season ended. And unfortunately, um, yeah, Greg lost his life that day. I, I remember uh, that. Yeah. Yeah. Sad deal. Yeah. So, I mean, my first weekend I'm working hand in hand with Roger, you know, about how we're going to get through this. And, um, you know, the, the night after the race is, is where I met Elio Castroneves and, and, uh, we hired Elio that night, um, afterwards and, you know, Roger, he's, you know, he's certainly, you know, he's of two minds, right. You, you give respect to what happened and, and you address that, but you also have to, you know, you have to keep going in life. Right. And, um, you know, that was my first experience with Roger, um, hand in hand. Well, that, you, that, you, that. you got dealt a hard card right off the bat, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, it, you know how it is. Uh, you don't know what you learned until after after it all worked. And, and it, it really accelerated our relationship. Um, you know, obviously, uh, um, you know, Greg Greg was someone that, you know, I, I really, really look forward to working with. And I'm still really close to his father now. In fact, you know, Austin's helmets, the helmet design that Austin runs is Greg Moore's helmet design. Oh, really? Okay, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, man. Yeah, Austin had come to me, you know, when he was, was running. And, and I got to tell you before I get off the show, I got to tell you, Mike, <laughs> that when, when I think about Austin driving race cars, it was never my dream for him to be a race car driver or any of my kids to even be involved in the sport, as ironic as that sounds. And I blame you. <laughs> I blame you for where it all started. And you may or may not remember this, but you called me one night at my office to inquire about Ryan Newman leaving our team in 2008 to see if there was a, an opportunity for you. And I could hear the race cars in the background. And I asked you where you were. Cause I knew your kids raced and I knew nothing about racing at that level. I'd never really focused on the, the racing and, and the bandoleros and the legends and all that. And at that time I didn't even know what a bandolero was. I knew what a legend was but I didn't know what it was. And, and I interrupted you and I said, Mike, where are you? And you said, you know, you were at the summer shootout, you know, running legends with your kids, come on down, you know, next Tuesday night or whatever it was. And you'd show us around. And that's where it all started for Austin. Um, are you, know, you serious? Inquired about, oh yeah. That's where it all started. You know, he had come to meet with me and his mom, like um, two or three weeks before that, you know, he wanted to have a family meeting at nine years old and he wanted to have a life changing discussion. That's how he put it. <laughs> and I had no idea what he was talking about. And he was kind of a clown as a kid. And, uh, he said, no, I'm dead serious. I want to become a professional race car driver. And I'm like, Austin, you're going to be too tall for that. You don't want to do that. And, uh, he said, that's not true. He said, um, 
he said, Michael Waltrip and, and, um, Justin, Justin Wilson, they're bigger than you, dad, and they're good race car drivers. So that's, that's not what's going to stop me. And, uh, man, I didn't know what to do. Um, I said, I look Austin, We'll think about it. Um, and, and anyway, I'd had that conversation with Austin a couple weeks before, and I didn't know even where to start or what to do. I mean, he was a great kid. I just didn't know even where to begin. And, and, uh, yeah, when I talked to you, I, I went down there and I thought, okay, this is, this is kind of a fun family thing. Um, it'll keep him out of trouble and give him a focus. It doesn't, you know, relative to the rest of the racing world, it's not like it's less expensive than go-karting really in a lot of ways. And, uh, like, yeah, we'll find a good team for him and off he went. Outstanding. Well, thank you for telling me that. That made me that feel is, good. I smiled. Cool you, know? yeah. yeah. you know, to add to that, I mean, not so much add to it, but I, I remember Austin racing out of Concord Speedway one night, and you yeah. were there, and Elio Castroneves was there. Yeah, and yeah I, Elio came to watch him race. Yeah, and, I, uh, you know, Mike, I would never let him. I, I didn't. I didn't put him with a top team. I just wanted him to have fun, and I never, never thought. I never had any aspirations of him becoming a race car driver, and uh, I wouldn't let him. You know, his uniform was the cheapest basic uniform. I wouldn't let him paint his car. His helmet was black. There was no painting or anything on his helmet or anything else. And he came to me one one day, a couple of years after, he was only wearing a black helmet. Uh, it was an impact. And uh, he said, if I ever get to paint my helmet a certain color, I want to do it just like Greg Moore's because after Greg passed, his father had sent me one of Greg's helmets. He had put three, he had made three helmets, Marlboro, team Penske helmets to use he gave Roger one he gave me one and he kept one and this helmet sat in our basement and Austin remembered it as a kid and I said Austin you can't just copy somebody's helmet design especially that one I said if, if you want if you want to use that design you need to talk to his father he's like what's his number <laughs> <laughs> young and had no fear right <laughs> oh no and, and he talked to Rick his father and, and uh, his father. He actually, his father called Troy Lee and told Troy Lee that he wanted Austin to, to have all the paint schemes that, that uh, Greg had. And he sent him an autograph card of Greg's from every year Greg raced. And all these stickers, uh, see at the front stickers that Greg had on the back of his helmet, which Austin still has. So anyway, little sidebar for you. That That's a... That's the best part of the whole story so far, if it's you want to know cool the truth. Story, absolutely. I, I really appreciate that. And uh, so he, he's become quite a race car driver. You and mom should be really proud. I, I can tell you that. I'm uh, from uh, – I, I, get up, well, Mike. He's... No, I, I said I set a phone because Greg – or that uh, Tim has got to be gone, and we said we'd be gone at a certain time, so I set my phone. I didn't expect it to go off. Yeah, yeah no, we, we can go here for another five minutes or so. so. Okay, so um, uh, you, you just tell us when you got to leave, okay? So, sure. Uh, such great stories. So through all of this, and we'll jump back to the Roger and you leading the organization. Did did you uh, did did the guys at Penske IndyCar? I mean, they they welcome you with open arms, or were they resentful oh, for no. you to walking in the door? Oh no, no. The, the general manager at the time was an English guy named Clive, and uh, you know we had our first meeting the first day I, I was working there, and, and Roger, you know, they didn't even know. I mean, this was a surprise to them, so I don't blame them at all. And, uh, you know, we finished a meeting with, with Roger and the, and the drivers and so forth in a conference room there in Reading. And I, I pulled Clive aside and I said, hey, man, I'm not here to take your job. I'm not really sure why, why I'm here. All I can do is tell you that this was his idea. I said, I didn't come looking for Roger. He came looking for me. So I didn't come here to steal your job. I'm here to work with you. He just looked at me and said, we'll see, and walked off. <laughs> <laughs> Friendly and welcome then, there, wasn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, then, then I walked upstairs that night. You know, I'm trying to get my bearings around this place because I'd never even been in the shop. And I'm walking around, and, and his head engineer was upstairs. And, uh, you know, I walked by his desk and kind of introduced myself because I didn't know him. And he says to me, can I ask you a question? I'm like, sure. He goes, why do we need a president here? because <laughs> i was the president of you know penske racing or whatever the time and i said i don't know but i guess i'm about to find out because <laughs> obviously this guy we all respect thinks we need one so i'm here to do the best job i can and it was really cool about two or three months later um we were testing at sebring and, and clive and i had to drive from sebring to homestead for another test so we had to drive across you know the, <laughs> the everglades or whatever and, and uh 
<clears throat> we're driving along and, and, uh, he says, and he had worked for Rogers since 79. So he'd been around there a long time. And he said, yeah, I just want to let you know, I now understand why you're here. Oh, and, uh, I mean, that, that was kind of the beginning of, of, basically the success and that team had such good people because all the all the ones that were there just to be there had all left by that time because they'd lost so much you know over the couple of years and they were not very successful but he um from that point on uh, the first indycar race we sat on the pole which was a huge uplift and yeah we went on to win the championship in 2000 we won a championship in 2001 we won the indy 500 in 01 02 and 03 um, so, I mean, it just took off, um, all in a good way for a lot of good reasons, but, uh, it wasn't me, but I, I feel like, um, Roger put somebody in the team that he trusted. It, it could have, there's other people that probably could have done the same job with given the resources, but at the end of the day, he gave me the trust. Well, it's gotta be a great, great feel to you. Even talking about it this many years later, going back and thinking about it, that, uh, a man of Roger's success business-wise, you know, industrialist, businessman race car driver had a, enough faith in a young guy and called you and he made you explain or understand down the road why you were needed and uh you know we can talk for hours but we, we're not a lot, we don't have enough time to do that i just want to thank you tim for joining jeff and i today sharing part of your story with the world and and maybe you know we can get another day that you're open and uh finish up this conversation because I, I love the early part and you made me feel really good telling me or about we the can Austin. go to cms and run some legends cars just yeah, the three of yeah. us yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, and I'm a, I, I, I do yeah I, I think about it all the time that um yeah like i said i i was trying to do everything that i could to discourage him to take this path and uh you know he was he was pretty adamant that's what he wanted to do and it was it was really because that phone call you gave me uh kind of was the catalyst for kind of why why he even why i haven't picked a direction for him so anyway no appreciate that appreciate your friendship and appreciate you guys having me wonderful and if you got an open seat on that airplane i'll be happy to go to le mans with you tomorrow <laughs> yeah, there you, go. <laughs> you happen to be free right yeah, yeah i'll make myself free thank you tim well, all right there well, goes. That, that's a big that's a big check in the box we need to make someday is, is to win that event so we'll see how it goes yes sir well in all seriousness you ever have an open spot i'd like to uh, come and i'll wear a, i'll get a varsity hat to wear Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> He's the president of Penske Racing. We've been talking to Tim Sendrick, and you've been listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass and NASCAR Digital Media. 